You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by the Breeders' Cup. Good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Friday, January the 20th. It's a lovely morning, but it's still extremely cold here in TW11. As far as the racing in Britain tomorrow is concerned, everything's flipped on its head. Haydock are now looking quite hopeful after a good thaw overnight, according to Kirkland Tellwright. They went from even money to about 100 to 1. They're now odds on again. Haydock Park, they're going to inspect precautionary inspection because it's raceable at the moment. Saturday morning, 8 o'clock. Taunton's rather gone the other way. They were talking only precautionary yesterday. Now they are holding a full-on inspection today, Friday at 4 o'clock, because at the moment... The track's unraceable. Ascot went west yesterday. Lingfield yesterday went west. Uh, Lingfield Sunday, apparently, they need the forecast to improve dramatically and a bit of luck, according to the BHA Racing Admin website. And Navan in Ireland is part unraceable at the moment, which I I think is probably like being a little bit pregnant. Anyway, um, Lydia Hislop joins me on the show this morning um, with news of a rather more fundamental nature. Lydia, where were you yesterday? Or what were you listening to yesterday? I listened to the sentencing by the disciplinary panel in the Danny Brock and Sean McBride case. There are also three other individuals. Um, it was when uh, the pleas for mitigation were made by uh, a lawyer representing Sean McBride. He was the only one of the uh, defendants who was who appeared at the hearing, and he was the only one that had a lawyer pleading for mitigation. But if we, we return to Danny Brock, who of course is the the person that people will most know, he's a a former jockey he now has a, a role as a, as a greyhound trainer he hasn't ridden since 2020 2021 when he got a 30-day ban for a series of whip offences when he had one of the highest breach rates ever seen by the British Horse Racing Authority. Uh, he has now been warned off for 15 years for deliberately preventing horses from running on their merits as part of a corrupt betting conspiracy. It uh, relates to three races from December 2018 to March 2019. Um, Sean McBride, who's the assistant trainer to, uh, to Charlie McBride and a good friend of Danny Brock's, he's been warned off by seven years. Um, and three others, Eugene Maloney, Luke Howells and Andrew Dering, who were all already excluded. Uh, Tim Charlton, who was the chair of the disability panel, uh, he directed the BHA that any application to remove their exclusion should not be entertained for a minimum of 15 years in each case. What did you learn yesterday that, that struck you most, most obviously? Two things, really. Uh, Danny Brock chose not to appear uh, he said that he was concerned about his and his family's safety and he had applied at the start um, for the hearing to be heard in private. And Tim Charlton then said that the balance of justice required it to be heard in public. And I think that was right. However, um, Danny Brock not being there to defend himself is going to have implications for him. He's quoted in the Racing Post today um, saying that he's considering an appeal against his 15 years warning off because I'm being made out to be someone... I'm not. Um, and during the course of the of yesterday's um, sentencing, Louis Weston made the, the case uh, about Danny Brock. What purpose does this man serve in the sport? He said he's corrupt. He shouldn't be in it. Um, so 
Danny chose not to defend himself, chose not to put evidence, chose not to appear. And now he is complaining that uh, he's being made out to be someone he's not, having been offered the chance to to put across who he is and what he is now um, and not done it. Now, I, I, you know, he's, he's said that he's got concerns about his and his family's safety. Fair enough. But th- that opportunity was there. And now, uh, and now, he, uh, uh, Daddy Brock seems to seems to think, or seems to feel that he has hasn't been well treated. Well, uh, I'm afraid the offer was there, and in some circumstances, you just have to be brave enough. And I know it's easy for me to say, sitting here, brave enough to go and face those um, those proceedings, as Sean McBride did. The other thing that struck me with um, Sean McBride was um, Charlie McBride had clearly made uh, quite an emotional appeal on behalf of his son during the course of the hearing. And that clearly carried some weight with everybody who heard it. Um, And Sean McBride, um, he lives with his father and mother in a unlicensed yard, which is adjacent to the licensed yard that Charlie McBride trains from. Now, he, of course, his son and, and assistant is now disqualified. And and Tim Charlton and his panel rather passed that hot potato to the BHA. Tim Charlton said it's up to the BHA to consider how and in what form um, restrictions are placed on Charlie McBride in dealing with his son on horse racing matters, even though they live in the same house. That's going to be a tricky one to unravel, isn't it? Yeah, and Sean McBride, given the way that he wants his future to pan out, possibly, you could argue, stood stood to lose the most out of any of the, the defendants in this case. Though this will have consequences beyond the confines of racing for Danny Brock, because he is also a licensed Greyhound trainer. I put in a call to Mark Bird, who's the Managing Director of the Greyhound Board of Great Britain earlier on, to see what the process would be. Obviously, he's been a trainer for some time now, um, as, as it was obviously being a chockey. Uh, up until um, the decision by the BHA. Um, our view will be one that we take by the regulatory board. Um, there's every chance it will be suspended in the meantime whilst that decision takes place and the regulatory board uh, make their decision. But it's it's normally uh, reciprocal in terms of what the BHA do that we follow. Uh, but again, I can't um, prejudge what the, the regulatory board will say on this one. Mark Bird there, that's pretty straightforward, Lydia. He He is suggesting what's likely to happen, but it would be very surprising if he 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 didn't have his suspension or his disqualification reciprocated by the GBGB, and that means that even the alternative career is going to be completely scuppered. Yes, which makes you, which perhaps leads you to believe that an appeal might be more likely. So uh, perhaps this um, episode has not finished quite yet, uh, and I, and I can understand if you've moved into a, a new career um, that you w- wouldn't wish to. Uh, have misdemeanors of the past having implications for it but sadly in life um in 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 other people's lives that that can happen so it'll be interesting to see if if uh, Danny Brock decides to appeal you mentioned Sean McBride and and being invested in the sport his lawyer um, mentioned that uh, he does have an intent um after he served his time to uh, come back into the sport once uh, and be rehabilitated and I think you know if we all all believe in justice that should be allowed to happen if somebody has, has has served their penalty and is contrite and uh, certainly uh, Sean McBride seemed to have made a, a positive impression during the course of, of, of the hearing. But, I, I, you know, I, again, I wasn't there in the early part, but um, certainly he was he was he, his lawyer was listened to and the points were weighed um, in the uh, mit- plea for mitigation that I listened to yesterday. Um, 
his lawyer, and this was before he'd checked with um, with his client, uh, did ask about when the appeal clock would be triggered. And that clock is triggered from when um, Tim Charlton um, KC um, publishes the written reasons for the uh, penalties that they gave out yesterday. So the clock doesn't tick as of yesterday. It ticks from the point of the reasons coming out. And they're likely to come out either at the end of this week or at the very start of next. I just look, always look for, for a bit of precedent. And the one the first thing that struck me was it's been quite a while since there's been a case like this, which mm. suggests that broadly speaking, or does it suggest broadly speaking, that since Paul Doe got 12 years, Greg Fairley got 12 years in the uh, Morris Sines and James Crickmore affair of the late tens um, or the late noughties, early tens, that the, the BHA system of deterrent has worked in, in as regards of corrupt riding offences? I don't know is the honest answer to that. Um, you'd like to think it is the case. Certainly the, sort of the patterning of, of behaviour on Betfair um, that, that's, that led to this being uncovered. I mean, for example, with the, the Samovar incident, which is where... Um, Danny Brock rode Samovar for Scott Dixon in a match and the conspirators uh, won around £100,000 by backing his only rival, Tricky Dicky. Um, Samovar lost a dozen lengths at the start and the panel said that uh, Brock made no serious effort thereafter, that's a quote, until giving him another quote, a slight push one furlong from home. Well, Sean McBride deposited £7,200 that morning and bet all of it on Tricky Dicky against Samovar ridden by uh, Brock and that was the largest bet um, that he had ever had um, with with Betfair. Um, so th- red flags, flags like that are are very evident. And when um, when exchanges and when betting companies have a memo of, of understanding with the BHA, they are able to share that kind of information. However, as we know, um, there is a, an active black market, um, and we have no idea. Uh, what what is happening there because they do not come in under any um, kind of kind of regulation or any kind of reach by regulators. So the truth is, the truthful answer to that question is, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there there was a lack of sophistication here, wasn't there? That, exactly. That made, that, that made this relatively straightforward. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, it, in anything where a large amount of money is involved, it would be naive to think that there aren't sophisticated operators looking to gain an edge that wouldn't otherwise be there. All right, just going back to where we began, um, ask it off tomorrow. We're still awaiting news as to whether the Clarence House chase is going to be rescheduled. The grade one race that was was due to take place featuring Edward Stone and Energumen, eagerly anticipated clash. The the likelihood is that it goes to Cheltenham next Saturday. It, it's not completely rubber stamp for reasons I'll come on to in a moment. But if it does go ahead next Saturday, would Energumen run at Cheltenham? I, I've been talking to the owner's racing manager, Sean Graham. Um, hey, Nick. Uh, the, the issue would be that um, with the uncertainty about about Ascot going ahead and it was always going to be very doubtful because the weather forecast was so bad we'd probably need more certainty over the weather forecast to be much better the fact that I don't think if it was touch and go with the weather forecast I'm not so sure whether we'd want to travel a horse over which is probably a day and a half travelling get him to Cheltenham and then the meeting's in doubt the meeting's called off and then we've got to travel the horse a day and a half home again 
So if it, uh, it certainly the door is open um, regarding the ways we'd want we'd want to run there. I'd say if if there was a certainty over the over the over the weather being much better, um, we could say for certain that the meet would go ahead. There's a fair chance the horse will turn up, but I don't like I say I don't want to mislead anybody. No. Um, I, I'll speak to I'll speak to Willie um, probably over the weekend, and we once we've had a, a good look at the weather forecast, we make a decision then. I suppose as well, Nick, it, you'd like to know what sort of value the race is going to be as well. You know. Yeah, that's a, that's a very important point. I I I think you know I don't think you've misled anyone. I think it's quite straightforward. You'd like to run the horse in in a Grade One here as you'd intended to do but you're not going to spend the whole week playing abandonment roulette and and if it's if it's sort of 50 50 might run you probably leave him at home yes yeah that would be it to be honest with you but w- what i'll do is um once the picture's a bit clearer um i'll certainly get in touch with you and and let you know what we're thinking all right great that's uh that's kai and sean with the horse as well i mean would would the Dublin Chase come into consideration if if you didn't go? Oh, definitely because he has an entry there. I mean, the reason the reason why why we we opted for the Clarence House was because the the the, the, the natural stepping stone would be Dublin Dublin at Christmas or, or Leopardstown at Christmas, then the the racing festival in, in February, then Cheltenham. And we just said, look, after the Hilly Way, we give the horse an extra few weeks and we go Clarence House. Now, if we went Clarence House, that would come too soon. That would probably be too close to the Dublin Racing Festival. Mm. And we just do simply what we did last year. But now that Clarence House has been abandoned, it'll be a case of, well, we'd love to give the horse a run before Cheltenham. And it'll either obviously be next week at Cheltenham or the Dublin Racing Festival. All right, that was Sean Graham, racing manager to Tony Bloom. It, that those that little three minute interview, Lydia, threw up more points than I I could have imagined. Really, mm, yes, I think it's. I can very much understand that you wouldn't want to risk travelling an Ergamen over uh, just for the sake of nothing. Um, so that you would you would a want the some sort of assurance or some sort of confidence from the weather forecast that the meeting will definitely go ahead and that you want you want it to be worth your while coming over i mean i i, I know it's a grade one but these things it, it mean less than they do on the flat where you obviously have have breeding implications for that and i know there are some breeding implications over jumps i'm not dismissing that but you also want to get paid on the way as well because it you know it's a it's a high risk sport um and you want to be uh, appropriately remunerated for mm. the standard of horse that you have so i think it's in it's it's going to be very interesting to see whether it's rescheduled at as at um cheltenham and whether that that it's going to be rescheduled for enough money to tempt an ergamen over and the weather forecast is right and presumably it's Blue Lord's presence in the Dublin chase that would, would more likely sway Camp Mullins if the weather forecast is kind to them to come to to come to Cheltenham so mm. that they could they could pick up two grade one races on the way rather than rather than just the one. You fancy if he didn't have other options in that Dublin chase, it's a damn sight easier to stay at home and race for twice the money, isn't it? Exactly. And you know, Willie Mullins does try to keep his horses apart to some degree, but when the grade is right. The money is right and the opportunity in terms of timing is right. He will run his horses against each other. So, you know, an Ergamon versus versus Blue Lord could potentially be on. Should they just get this on come what may? Should there be a grade one replacement, whether or not any of these horses are, are, are going to turn up? 
I don't think it can be contingent on finding out whether the horses are going to turn up. You've got to get the principle right within reason, provided there's not too much of a clash. And at the moment, of course, we have a uh, a paucity of horses, uh, particularly in, in two miles, I think over hurdles and chases of that level. And so you do actually have to bear in mind whether some grade ones might actually be perversely classic clashing with grade twos, like the game spirits. And of course, we've already mentioned there's yeah. the option of the Dublin Racing Festival over the Irish Sea, which is another reason why there should be an Anglo-Irish pattern. <laughs> In case you've never listened to this podcast before, Lydia thinks there should be an Anglo-Irish pattern. <laughs> I'm, I'm offering big odds. I'm offering big odds. Now, if you're listening to this after one o'clock uh, on Friday afternoon, I've just actually had an update from Sean Graham subsequent to recording that, where he said he'd spoken to Willie Mullins again and he was very much minded to go to the Clarence House chase if it is rescheduled for Cheltenham. So... At the moment, as I'm speaking to you now this minute, which is 12.46, there's still been no announcement from the BHA as to whether they're rescheduling or whether anyone's rescheduling or whether anyone's put the money up or whatever. So I don't know what's going to transpire for the rest of the afternoon. But if it does go ahead at Cheltenham next week, the intention very much, according to Sean, is for them to run. Right, we've had a bit of correspondence on this. James Finch, racehorse owner, and Carl Hinchy, also racehorse owner, both of the view that we're missing a trick in rescheduling big handicaps rather than grade one races. Uh, James Finch says, I can't think of another racing jurisdiction in which no attempt at all would be made to reschedule big feature handicaps and conditions races outside the odd graded race. It's just, oh, well, run in the next one without considering the impact on overall returns to owners. I, I think I I see what he's saying, but it, it reckons without the way that the, the sport's structured and who's responsible for the prize money or the individual race courses, Lydia. Exactly. It just it all comes back to, to, to money in the end, doesn't it? And I, I'm, I'm not necessarily I need to see what the what the programme for handicappers are. It might be that a particular type of horse uh, has unfortunately been disadvantaged by the pattern of abandonments that we have had due to the weather over the, over the Christmas period. It, it, it is. I'm not dismissing that it's possible that a, a particular type of horse uh, might have might have got unlucky. But generally, those kind of handicaps are raced pretty regularly. I realise there are nuances of different tracks and left or right-handed and the, the money involved. But uh, when you reschedule a, an extra race. Um, let's say that like the nine race card that is proposed for Sunday provided Lingfield passes in its inspection and, and other races like that, particularly over jumps, I think, do, putting on more races, would that actually generate more um, betting turnover? I have, to, I have to doubt it. You know, I think there is a, a finite amount of money out there that people are prepared to, to spend on betting and just adding more on top of pre-existing races, I don't think necessarily will get the uh, income into racing that uh, racing racing would ideally require and certainly wouldn't be comparable to those races being run in their intended slots. I appreciate from an owner's point of view that's slightly different, but that is where the money comes from. By the time you have listened to this podcast, you may already know the amount of whip offences that there there would have been in the new betting in process. Uh, so uh, offences that would have triggered a, a ban um, had the new rules been in place. It's a it's a it's a large amount. It's about five times the amount it would normally be. And my understanding, Lydia, is that most of those offences pertain to uh, raising a whip above shoulder height, for which there is now no discretion whereas there was before and would have been under the proposals before they were changed by the BHA board in conjunction with the jockeys 
quite recently. So the jockeys wanted no discretion. That was part of the trade-off. And I'm led to believe that pretty much three quarters of this large amount of offences is because of raising of the whip above shoulder height. And many of those offences have been committed by the same group, a smallish group of riders. So there's likely to be another inflamed reaction to this, I should think. Interesting. Very interesting. The first thing I would say that is that this is a bedding in period. And, and thank goodness there is one. I mean, that is at least sensible. I don't think the timing of it is particularly sensible. I'll be completely honest. I think that uh, going into February, just before the the um, Cheltenham Festival, when this these rules are going to become live, I just think we haven't learned from the mistakes of the past. You know, I'm thinking about the previous iteration of the whip rules uh, when we had that scene with Christophe Soumillon, um interviewed by you, I think, uh, on, on British Champions Day. So I fear there might be a, a repeat of that, given the timing of when the, uh, the rules go live. But coming back to this, that, that's what a bedding in period is for. So if it's five times the usual amount, wh- whatever that is, and it's concentrated on on a small number of jockeys what you want to actually see is progress during the bedding in period so you start off with number x and by the time you're coming out of the bedding in period you want to be significantly smaller than x that would really be the point but again again i'm interested in what you've just uh, gone through just to so to underline to listeners the timeline of this so the, the stewards could exercise discretion in the application of uh, the whip rules previously and uh, the rules that are currently operative. Then the next stage was the first iteration of the whip review uh, committee's recommendations. And just just explain what happened next, Nick. Well, what happened next? In terms of, if you're looking at this particular offence of raising a whip above shoulder height, there was a clearer definition of what that meant in the in the revised proposals that the steering group put forward. And that there was still a discretionary element to that. In the trade-off, for the, the 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 kicking into touch of the the backhand forehand situation, the jockeys wanted everything to be incredibly clear, um, transparent, and non discretionary. So, therefore, this uh, this 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 non discretionary element of this seems to have triggered this enormous raft of uh, of what would be offen- would be offences. I've got two points to make on that. The first is, uh, be careful what you wish for when you remove discretion. Uh, necessarily, things are are scrutinised because it, 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 you're you're not being given discounts and credits by individual sets of stewards. Now you can argue that from a consistency point of view, and this is where the jockeys are coming from, that that's a good thing. It means that if a smaller number of people, because all whip um, potential whip offences will go to the three person review panel of which I think the chair is always the same person. And I imagine there will be some consistency as to who sits on the left and right. One is a uh, a steward, a professional steward in the BHA. The other is one of their volunteer stewards, a stewards panel chair with a, a lot of experience. So it's got the similar setup, well, the same setup really, as that you would find if you went in a, into a stewards inquiry on a race course. And the theory is, of course, that if the same set of people or a small group of people are the ones that are uh, presiding over the the same type of offence, that you will get greater consistency than different people on different days all around the country coming together and uh, using the rules to try to come to a similar conclusion. So I I can understand uh, why why we've got here, but I think the 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 jockeys need to be open eyed about what the removal of of discretion means and why. And why that might be a very, very big step change from what went before. As I said, I, I 
in many ways welcome it because I felt that um, that, that it was quite murky, really. I don't think, not intentionally so. But I think that I think it's only natural that if, if different individual stewards might have a different approach to what could and could not be discounted. And the other thing, I suppose, is 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 my other point is about the the BHA board. Um, so you know they they uh, hold responsibility for this. It, it's as you point out, it's they and the jockeys who have come to this these final conclusions, these that what the, what the rules now look like. It was taken out of the uh, whip review committee's uh, control once their recommendations were, were, were changed. And I heard you interview David Armstrong, the chief executive of the Racecourse Association. Was it last week or was it the week before? I can't, I can't recall. And uh, he, you asked him about uh, the, uh, the latest news on the whip and he quite explicitly dodged the question and passed it to uh, fellow members of the BHA board who are more qualified to talk about it than him. Well, I'm afraid not. All members collectively of the BHA board have responsibility for these rules because it is they and the jockeys that decided them. All right. Well, while we're in the freezing cold, there is racing, of course, taking place in Dubai. Uh, Maidan staging this week's edition of the Dubai International Carnival. The feature race is the UAE 1000 Guineas for fillies on dirt and Newmarket trainer Harry Eustace coming off the back of a, an excellent 2022, looking to enhance his international reputation further courtesy of Cite Dor, who'll be ridden by champion jockey William Buick, and she's highest rated in the field as well. Harry, you're in Maidan now. How, how's she doing? Been very happy with her, Nick. Um, she's been in a, a good three three weeks um suffered in great so we, we've done everything we can and 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 obviously the the main question mark is is the surface the dirt rather than the grass um and and we'll find that out this evening what what gave you the idea to do this and, and in particular target a race like this on the dirt um i have to say nick nick put the idea of dubai forward first and he sent through the ratings of, of the three old fillies that sort of ran in Dubai last year. Uh, and I don't want to say it's a weak division, but um, they're sort of relatively unexposed, I suppose, is, is compared to us. And we initially had sort of targeted the race next week as a seven furlong race on, on the grass for three old fillies. But we were keen to make an entry in this race and just see where we fit in numbers wise. Uh, and frankly, when we saw the entries and a number of them, we, we thought we we were, uh, we were best to roll the dice here, find out you know, a bit about her on the dirt, and, and it'll allow us to sort of guide us for options for her second run, either the dirt or the grass. What what really struck me, Harry, and slightly unusually as well, was how much she did in such a short space of time between her debut on the 4th of August and um, the back end of October, she ran plenty and she, she kept him improving. Is that a measure of her of her toughness? And could that be an indicator as to how she might be able to adapt to a new surface? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. She, To be fair to her, just every start, she just, well, well certainly, I don't know about Nick, but she just surprised me, in particular, the Epsom run. I thought that was a, a real indicator that actually she was she was a bit above average. It's quite a good horse of Andrew Baldings and, and we we were staying on all the time and, and Pierre said both of them, you know, rattled through the line together. Um, and I think you're absolutely right. Her her attitude in particular is, is absolutely rock solid. Uh, and my hope is that 
if we can if we can get out and into a stride uh, and travel the first sort of two three four furlongs on the dirt if we're if we're on the bridle hitting the bend she's going to stay the trip very well and she's very tough and battle hardened against some of these and, and it just might hold her in good stead I can't let you go without asking about Ziggy, who ran a, another super race last week behind Forrest of Dean in the fast track qualifier at, at Newcastle. I'm guessing finals day would be would be on his agenda. Yeah, finals day is very much the plan. Um, the, the beauty of that race at Newcastle was that if he'd won that, then we were guaranteed a run and, and we could sort of stay lightly raced into it through the winter. Um, but if we if we ran well without winning, we, we wouldn't be reassessed by the handicapper. So he'll race off 95 in a handicap at the end of the month at Kempton, where he won last time. And that'll give him his three runs to qualify. Uh, and then and then we'll freshen him up into, into finals day. Harry Eustace there. Best of luck to him with Cite Dor in the UAE 1000 guineas. And top class international racing will always be covered here on the Nick Luck Daily podcast and I'll be based in Florida next week in Gulfstream Park ahead of the running of the Pegasus World Cup and as I told you a little earlier in the week and the official announcement has just come out that the $1 million Pegasus World Cup turf will now be presented by Qatar Racing. It's one of North America's most prestigious grade one turf races. It'll be broadcast live with us on NBC between 4.30 and 6 o'clock Eastern on Saturday, January the 28th from Gulfstream as part of that Pegasus telecast. Sheikh Farhad Althani, chairman of Qatar Racing, said we're delighted to sponsor the Pegasus World Cup turf, which has quickly established itself as one of the leading fixtures in the USA as Qatar Racing continues to evolve as a global breeding and racing operation, whose sponsorship portfolio, of course, as you'll know, also incorporates races at the Breeders' Cup fixture and, in addition, uh, the major races on Kipco Champions Day. Uh, Lydia ought to have a, a a brief word just at the end of a week where the issue of affordability checks has reared its head consistently and quite rightly. Also, we've had this issue, which we touched on yesterday with Neil Channing on the show about the, the Gambling Commission's judgment against Tony Bet and that £440,000 fine that they received. Um, have you got a, a final thought on that for the moment? Well, there was a there's a line in it um, in the report of, on on Tony Bet, a quote from the Gambling Commission um, that made me uh, raise my eyebrows and um, and, and and giggle a little. Um, they, the the Gambling Commission, the regulator, objected to friction being placed in front of withdrawals and not deposits. Mm. Now, if if that is a, a a point of view that they are going to apply more widely then I would suggest that uh, lots of, of terms and conditions are hastily being rewritten um, and that uh, a number of, uh, uh, of gambling operators should be reviewing their practice. I think it is completely correct if you're suddenly going to raise concerns about uh, where about the, the money that somebody wishes to withdraw, you should have raised, you know, ethically, you should have raised those concerns when the money was deposited, uh, because otherwise it, it just that, that just plainly isn't right. Um, and the other thing is, I, you know, I keep hearing this rhetoric about uh, affordability checks and, you know, gambling. You, you, we get the testimony from gambling company X and gambling, um, gambling company Y. 
that they had to do this because the Gambling Commission requires them to. Well, I'd refer everyone who listens to the uh, Gambling Commission's Customer Interactive Guidance for Remote Gambling Licensees. Um, this guidance applies from the 12th of September 2022 and overrides any previous guidance. And I, 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 I don't see the uh, the way in which, uh, for example, there was Joe Beavers earlier in the week who was talking about um, you know having to uh, pr- give all of his statements, uh, bank statements, and, uh, and everything to do with his finances, and also that of his friends because his friends had he he'd paid some money to his friends, and his men- his friends had paid some money to, to to them. You know, in the in the way that we all do. You know, when we're sharing costs for a holiday, X or Y. Um, there's never been a fine from the Gambling Commission, as far as I, I know, for not asking a winning customer for their source of funds. Um, and the assumption seems to be out there that the, the experiences that people like Joe Beavers are having are because of affordability checks. I, I question that assumption. Um, I, I, I think that the, the concern about affordability checks is that they might, in some cases, uh, not be used for their intended purpose, which is to combat gambling harm, but the betting companies will start to use that um, against those customers who they, it's the latest excuse, essentially, for weeding out profitable cu- customers, i.e. bettors who win yeah. or show signs of a potential for winning. And this is what we're all concerned about, that in the Wild West out there at the moment, the individual gaming companies are behaving as they want, but certainly in their own favour. Yeah, and the the point that Neil made yesterday was time will tell whether this was a... Um you know, the, the small guy being picked on and a shot across the bows or whether it was a genuine statement of intent. He also made the point that there were a whole raft of things that, that Tony Bett had been doing that the Gambling Commission didn't like. And it might have just been the culmination of a whole of a mm. whole range of of issues. Well, as you know, by now, we are always very keen to promote shared ownership on this podcast and the discussion of, of how many badges syndicate members get on race days and how well members of larger syndicates are looked after is is something that comes up quite regularly we spoke about it earlier in the year with with nevin truesdale at the jockey club pleased to welcome rebecca davis head of racing industry partners for arc arena racing company to the show because i know rebecca you wanted to to really underline what what arc's policy is and and how you're pushing syndicate ownership forward uh- Thanks, Nick. Yes, um, no, good to be on. I think there's been a lot of focus, rightly so, on, on syndicates and the ownership experience uh, um, over recent months and and certainly years now. But but what we've been doing in ARC is trying to invest in that overall experience from the from the micro syndicate um, member to you know, bigger sole owners. And, and we operate, or we will operate, by the start of the 2023 turf flat season, a syndicate lounge at all ARC racecourses where... Uh, any horse that's owned by a syndicate, they can have a minimum 20 syndicate badges, access into this complimentary lounge with light refreshments uh, and build the experience up from there. We're, we're trying to make sure that even the you know, the micro syndicates where someone like Rebecca Davis pays £59 a month still has a premiumised experience from a race goer because I, I think as a whole industry, we recognise that if together we collectively give these people a good experience, they feel very special, they have privileges and they're well looked after, hopefully that investment in enjoyment in the sport will continue to greater levels in the future yeah and and thus far i mean the sport's just been a a little bit behind in terms of catching up with the the evolution of the of the syndicate from you know two people getting together to to two two hundred thousand people getting together 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, as an industry, we've recognised actually that there's a, there's a huge you know, pool of people here that are huge fans of the sport and, and are investing in, in, in amounts, some small, some, some not insignificant amounts either with some of the smallest syndicates. So I think it's all about the introductory level and how can we demonstrate to them that by getting involved in the sport, it's great fun. There are great experiences to be had at the races, whether you win or lose, because at the end of a race day, there are only ever going to be six or seven you know, ha- happy owners leaving the race course as winners. So it's very important for ARC that we, we give all people on the race day that are part of our ownership experience a great day, because actually we don't want them going home, not having enjoyed the day, even if they might not have enjoyed a winner. And realistically, Rebecca, 20 is a, is a really good number and, and it's not often you get more than 20 syndicate members turning up for, for one horse. But obviously the way things are going, we could end up with a 100 plus uh, members of, of huge syndicates. Um, how are you going to, to make sure that, that they have a, a premierized experience, as, as you put it? I think it's all about balance, Nick. So on days when um, perhaps there are less owners, owners have to register by four o'clock the day before racing with the race course. And that's really so that all race courses around the country know, you know the likely number of owners arriving to, to make the correct kind of catering arrangements, etc. I, th- I think on days when perhaps there are very obviously some big syndicates and, and perhaps in that race there are less syndicates or there are less syndicates on the day, it's down to the individual race courses with an arc to, you know, work with the syndicates. So it might be that we strike a deal where they have more than the minimum 20 syndicate badges, but anything above and beyond a certain agreed number would then be a pretty heavily discounted syndicate badge ticket. So they would still get access to the uh, race course and the facilities, but there would be a modest charge because obviously we've also got to protect our income lines as well for the race course and, and I wouldn't necessarily think that every race course would want to be giving away you know, hundreds and hundreds uh, for syndicates. But that said, Nick, we've been operating this now for a period of time with the, with a minimum 20 syndicate badges and on a number of race days there are syndicates that, that don't get to that number. So I think you know we want to be agile, we want to be flexible so that those that want to come with greater numbers we can also accommodate to give that slightly enhanced experience from a race goer. All right, thanks to Rebecca, thanks to all my guests today. Just to pick that up with, with you Lydia clearly anything that race courses are doing to increase the amount of badges for syndicates is a is a good thing if you are if you are part of a of a syndicate however many members there are that you you as a as an owner on that day deserve a preferential experience to the person who's got zero involvement the syndicates in many ways are the future i know that's something that people glibly say but it, it really is because it, it it requires um it, it it means that people have an accessible way of getting into racehorse ownership, which broadens their understanding and their interaction and their experience of the sport. And in order for them to potentially take the next step or just remain investing in syndicates, whichever they decide to do, the next step being, you know, having a having a larger involvement in, in horses, they need to have a good experience. And so that involves them uh, not merely just being part of the crowd when they go along to a race course for as much as possible. Now, clearly, some syndicates have such large numbers that in terms of infrastructure and also health and safety, the, the thing that's always always wheeled out, but in this case does have some validity um, in terms of the winning's enclosure and the, and the parade wing when there are animals uh, w- w- walking around those two places. Uh, you know, that, that does have a, that does curtail potential numbers and that's entirely reasonable as long as it's implied reasonably um but yeah i I do think that that syndicate owners should be able to have a special experience when they go to the race course to reflect their investment and their involvement with the sport do you now do you want something for free go on do you mean i'm always always suspicious of something for free go on but yes just you're just supposed to say yes give me free sorry 
<laughs> no, no. But what, 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 what's what's the what's the angle with the free stuff? There's no angle at all. There's no angle. I don't want anything. I want to give you for free access to the National Horse Racing Museum for the next two Sundays, 22nd and the 29th of January, continuing free Sundays in January. Um, that, because... I, I, I remove my cynicism. That sounds excellent. Thank you. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's no, there's no, there's no angle here. There's no side to it. It's just a fantastic place mm. uh, in every respect. It's beautifully looked after. It's um, it's got a a, a world class con- collection of sporting art, wonderful exhibitions, and it is right in the heart of Newmarket. And you can go for free. And it's a great family day as well. Um, fa- fabulous restaurant, National Horse Racing Museum in Newmarket, Sunday and next Sunday, completely free of charge. There you go. That's next. It's a it's a, it's a great museum. I, I I think I might pop along um next Friday. You will have actually to come pay. On <laughs> <laughs> actually pay. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I think I can manage it. Excellent. Right. Have you got a tip for us to help you pay for your trip to the museum next Friday? Well, well indeed. Um, well, I'm hoping that Nathan's going to be on. Uh, I like my trump card in the two seventeen for Gordon Elliott and Jamie Codd, uh, a horse that showed uh, quite a bit over hurdles on debut and is now dropping back into bumper company which you can do in Ireland and can't do in Britain it looks as though there'll be uh, some sort of Willie Mullins machine up against up against him um, and a horse that you know very well Nick in the same race what in that bumper yeah run for Harry yeah a horse I a horse I bred who I must say I was rather surprised to see hit the track as a four-year-old because the family have been so late developing um, and the dam didn't race till she was six and then she ended up being okay uh, and got a little bit of black type in a bumper, but um, all her progeny have been incredibly backward. Um, but he he obviously came to hand a bit early. But I did speak to the trainer, Gillian Callahan, after he made his debut and finished a, a seemingly quite respectable third. And she said he mm. is absolutely massive. <laughs> so, you know, anything he does is a bonus. <laughs> Good. Well, I look forward to seeing what he can do as well. But my tip is my trump card in the 217 at Navan on Saturday. All right. That was Friday, January the 20th. Back with you Monday. Bye bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.